welcome to the Political Risk Brief. My name is Jonathan Barron of Barron Public Affairs. Thank you for joining us at the intersection of policy, politics, and business. Today's topic, Guide for the Perplexed, Trends in Government Relations. In recent months, we have received a lot of questions and requests about what we're seeing in Washington from all different places, covering a variety of topics. And we thought to address some of these questions and inquiries, we would bundle together all of the patterns that we're seeing across the firm's various projects and try to tease out themes, consistencies, emerging opportunities, changes in the environment that suggest how Washington might be changing and what we think are going to be the key issues that are confronted by all those who are interested in policy, in advocacy, in issues, and the direction of Washington overall. And as we chatted as a team, and I want to welcome Johnny Fluger, our chief strategist. Great to be here. And Jeremy Furchgott, director. Thank you. Good to be here. And as we were sort of chatting and sort of figuring out, you know, what are we seeing? We identified seven core areas that we think say a lot about the state of government relations in Washington, the state of the battle over advocacy, how companies and issue groups and foundations are positioning themselves, the challenges they face, and how they're dealing with those challenges. So to begin, one of the things that we really notice is what we call lobbying trench warfare. And this is the idea that essentially major companies, large movements, sophisticated players in Washington have essentially reached parity in the lobbying competition, that in any or most given major conflicts, each side has lobbied up, they've covered the relevant offices, key committees, et cetera, and it's basically fought to a bloody stalemate where progress is measured in inches rather than miles. And so the question becomes not simply why does that happen, but what do you do about it? Before we get to the what do you do about it, I want to just invite Johnny and you, Jeremy, in to talk about what this looks like and how people should understand it. I think the challenge is that companies see that the company on the other side of the issue can match whatever they spend on lobbying. And so you end up with this kind of parity where both sides of the issue are spending similar amounts of money with similar types of lobbying strategies. They're hiring people who have access to the same offices, the same committees. And it makes it really hard to win when your competition can do basically the exact same thing that you're doing. One thing that's noteworthy about the lobbying market is that the pricing and the activity is transparent. You can find out basically anything you want to know about an entity's registered lobbyists through a House of Representatives or Senate website disclosing the information provided under the Lobbying Disclosure Act. And when you look at those filings, you see financial parity as well as numerical parity. There are rarely cases where in a battle between big companies, one company has 40 external registered lobbyists and the company on the other side has three external lobbyists. And the same, I think, rule of thumb holds for internal lobbyists. On a previous episode, we described the war for Washington, where we got into the statistics on the number of registered lobbyists and some outlying cases of government affairs activity, most significantly Amazon. But for the most part, in the Fortune 500 or well-known privately held companies, the number of personnel and the spend settles at particular levels. And these are, I think, not arbitrary, but reflect 
the natural priority of this activity relative to other corporate endeavors. So it's unlikely that a CFO of a company looking at, say, research and development expenses in the hundreds of millions of dollars or billions of dollars is going to just easily rubber stamp lobbying activity that's $100 million. That's just not credible. It doesn't happen. And it's important to be aware of these natural points of gravity in the system. Johnny, I think that sometimes these natural points of gravity occur because at the end of the day, government relations is a people process. Even if you could theoretically spend more money, there are only so many meetings you can have and only so many relationships that you can maintain. So I think that that creates a kind of norm or a kind of cap on what's possible. Yeah, moreover, Jeremy, to your point, staffers can only take so many meetings in a given period on a particular topic. So that's the other piece of it, and I think you're exactly right. In many ways, and I'll just be brief here, I think lobbying is overemphasized. It is certainly necessary, but it is rarely sufficient. But I think in a culture that's very focused on sports, lobbying is the political equivalent when it comes to governing of sports. And it has that sort of media gratification, the meetings, what happens, going into the meeting, the meeting itself, coming out of the meeting, what's the next meeting. It's sort of a way people can easily roughly keep score, and it has sort of a day-to-day quality to it, which I think gives it a lot of timeliness. But again, it also results in lobbying, in many cases, being overemphasized. And again, the reality is this trench warfare quality where people mostly fight to parity. So that leads to this question I referenced earlier, which is, okay, what do you do about it? And the parts that we'll go to now as our second and third topics, which are perhaps linked, is how people go to lobbying and skip what we'll call the design and planning process, and in many ways, the the thought leadership process that really should precede or at least complement the lobbying. We have a practice called influencer analytics where we make quantitative assessments of the opinion environment on a particular topic as affecting a group of government officials. And so far as I can recall, not once in all of the influencer analytics, IA projects we've run, has a super influencer been a lobbyist or intermediary in the government relations process, a public affairs consultant, a procurement expert, not once. All of those super influencers have been journalists, celebrities, professors, people who are primarily regarded as cultural leaders or thought leaders. And when you go directly to lobby, you miss that framework of accreditation that's so important for actually persuading a congressional staff or an administration official of the merit of your position. They need to understand that people with thinking credentials, for lack of a better turn of phrase in the system, are willing to embrace and support this perspective. And if you don't have that, a lot of times the lobbying activity can end up being quite shallow, where the staffer or staffers will superficially assent to the request that a lobbyist is making. But when push comes to shove, they will not embrace the lobbyist perspective because the information environment is not receptive to whatever it is that's being sought. Jeremy, how would you, for our audience, describe this design and planning process that I referenced? And what are the disadvantages in skipping it and just sort of going right to the action? 
One mistake that we see occur on occasion is the following, that companies make certain assumptions about what the real challenge is going to be. In other words, they make assumptions about what is going to be easy and what's going to be hard. And often they make mistakes. And it turns out that there's an opportunity that they had overlooked and there's a challenge that maybe they had overemphasized. And you just end up with a lot of wasted resources. You end up losing not just money, but you lose time. You lose time that you can't get back. It's very easy to just go straight to direct meetings and go talk to people right away. But then you find yourself in a position where you've already had the meetings, and then you actually find out something that you wanted to say, and you kind of miss the opportunity. You have to start again. It's very, very complicated once it happens. I think that because so many, especially corporate government relations offices, are understaffed and under-resourced relative to the seriousness of the issues assigned to them, that they're operating at a tempo that makes it not impossible but hard for them to engage in design and planning. You might have a major company with 15 or 20 people covering the entire administration, all of Congress, independent agencies, all kinds of other factors, and there's just no way they feel they can keep up. And so even finding the time to do essential design and planning, it seems, and it often is very, very difficult. And that's a mistake more often than not, but it reflects sort of the pressures that these offices are under. And given the stakes and given the amounts of money at stake that we see each and every day, I really do think that C-suites should reconsider the budgets that they allocate for GR. Not, by the way, for people like us. That's a different topic, although I'm not against increasing those budgets. But I think for their internal people, I think that's where the real shortfalls happen. Jonathan, you're absolutely right. I mean, we see people who are sometimes in a position that seems like mission impossible, where there's a company with billions, sometimes tens of billions of dollars in annual revenue. And the team that's assigned to protect this company is a skeletal team, sometimes in the single digits. And you wonder, I mean, how is it that so much is being tasked to such a tiny team and they end up being just swamped and scrambling from crisis to crisis? Yeah, and by the way, I think that reflects in part there are many CEOs, of course, almost all of them, reside and gain their experience outside of Washington. They understandably resent Washington for intruding into their businesses and complicating their lives, and they take out that resentment on their GR people in Washington, right? It's like when I was a communications director and press secretary on Capitol Hill, I had bosses who hated the media, and they would take it out on me as they thought that I was representing the media. And of course, I wasn't. I was representing them. <laughs> and I would say, look, I'm, I'm on your side. I'm not on their side. But it's very easy to vent your frustration to the most convenient place. So I think that's part of this dynamic. So we asked the question, well, then, okay, if you do design and planning, what does that get you? If you manage to find the time to step back and think through the problem, what that really allows you to do is to secure what we would call a thought leadership advantage. And John, I'd like you to walk our audience through what that means. This term of thought leadership is a cliche. It's been tossed around in corporate speak all the time. But give people a sense of why it matters in a Washington setting. Staffers working for members of Congress, working for principals in the administration, are not making decisions subsequent to your entreaties in a vacuum. They are operating within a ideological framework within an information environment, within a system. And in order for them to embrace whatever it is that you're advocating for, they have to see that those ideas, that set of policy positions has merit, 
is credible, is embraced by a, if not majority, you know, plurality of decision makers or embraced by a plurality of stakeholders. And thought leadership is the mechanism to ensuring that all of that occurs. If you can galvanize stakeholders around a particular concept or suite of concepts and do so in a way that appeals to the sensibility of the environment, that makes the lobbyist's job and the company's challenges much easier. And thought leadership can be many things, to put it crudely. It can be a white paper, it can be an op-ed, it can be social media activity to some extent. I think one thing that is not thought leadership is advertising. And we see over and over again, large companies think they're going to win in some large government competition, especially procurements via advertising in Metro Center. If you're concerned about shipbuilding policy, you're going to win some big shipbuilding procurement by virtue of advertising. And in our experience, you win procurements and you win other battles implicating government relations by having a substantive claim to make about what shipbuilding should look like, not just having images with slogans. And to your point, Johnny, whatever the vehicle of thought leadership, again, whatever form it takes, what's so important is the people behind that thought leadership. Are they truly influential? Are they truly credible? Do they have relevance to the target audience, the policymakers who are making the decision? What is their standing in various key communities and tribes? So yes, it's both the mechanism, but also the originators of that thought leadership. And does that connect with the objective? And shockingly few people think that through in a disciplined way. There's a lot of confusion about credibility too, I think. In general, there's an overweighting of academic credibility. We've talked about this before in the context of the revolution that's occurring in antitrust right now. It's not harnessing a study by someone who was trained at Harvard. It's about harnessing a study that relates to the priorities of the opinion leaders, of the decision makers in government right now. That is credibility not just academic credentials. Academic credentials certainly can help, but they're not dispositive. One additional comment about thought leadership, when the quantitative side of government relations can be fought to parity, you can hire as many lobbyists as the other side. You can spend as much on lobbying as the other side. You can lobby the same offices as the other side. Quantitatively, you can reach parity. As a result, the qualitative side, which is thought leadership, becomes increasingly important because that's when you can really gain an advantage that the other side will not be able to gain. Our fourth topic is what I'll call camouflaged business competition, which references the idea that very often a policy argument is really businesses battling in disguise. An example of this would be you might see a debate emerge in the press, other places, about a new concept of warfare. This would be a defense issue. And it's people arguing, you know, what's the right approach to how the United States wages war? And you might think, oh, this is a strategy debate. This is a question of good defense policy. But what's really going on is you have different kinds of companies maneuvering to attract spending their way. So it might be companies that are essentially focused on IT, 
trying to outmaneuver companies that are focused on hardware. And so by defining the concept of warfare, if you win that, then you can drive all kinds of dollars your way. But again, on the surface, it appears like a very high-minded defense policy argument, but in fact, it's really a business competition. And the same can be said about other areas. Healthcare, for example, so much of healthcare policy debates really come down to battles between, say, hospitals versus pharma versus insurers versus pharmacies and distributors and other types of healthcare companies. Nobody likes to say that explicitly, but that's really what's driving so many of the debates. Right. So some party to the healthcare debate will say, oh, my gosh, we need more transparency. But of course, it's always very specific kinds of transparency that affects very specific parts of the healthcare system. It's never broad calls for transparency, or rarely, which is the surest way to know that someone is trying to gain an advantage by keeping their own model opaque while exposing someone else's model. So again, that's really not a policy debate. It's a business competition playing out through the venue of government. So the key is when you see those policy arguments asking what are the commercial interests, what are the sectors, the industries that have a lot at stake, and truly getting to an understanding of that dynamic, revealing those things. And by the way, I would say many government relations battles are won by the party able to cast their opponent as the craven, purely commercially driven interest. And so where one side of policy debate is, oh, these are the rapacious businesses, the other side is just arguing for good government and good policy, that inequity often carries the day. And so where there are actually two commercially-minded parties in competition, revealing that and servicing that can be very, very important to how that competition plays out in Congress, in regulation, et cetera. One phenomenon that we've seen and something we talk to our clients a lot about is when a company is explicit about their commercial objectives, counterintuitively it actually can give them more credibility because at least they're being honest about it, which many entities in D.C. are not. An excellent point. Yeah, Rather than hiding behind all kinds of high-minded, intellectualized rhetoric, disclosing very clearly the interest, making the case for it, acknowledging the trade-offs, that is actually key. That kind of candor, I think, is actually very, very powerful. And one interesting area where we see this is in government advisory boards. I say this as someone not on a government advisory board. There's less than robust transparency into government advisory boards. And you see over and over again, people who have a commercial interest, who have a consulting contract, surface as part of the advisory board discussions, views, recommendations, policy proposals that are aligned with those commercial interests without disclosing, hey, when I'm not in this government advisory board meeting, I'm working for that entity. And lo and behold, those recommendations those policy proposals begin to take shape and seep into the, what you call, Jonathan, high-minded debate on a particular topic. And that is everywhere to some extent, but that it's everywhere would suggest that it's, until now, in many cases, proved a successful strategy, but it also bears within it tremendous vulnerability. If you have one competitor who is exercised about what you're doing and calls you out, it's really a sort of death trap for your policy perspective. Trend five, what we call the new policy superpowers, and these are foundations. And I'm going to just give a quick statistic, and I'm going to hand it over to you, Jeremy. But based on an analysis that we recently conducted, 
foundations spend something like $300 million plus each year shaping healthcare policy. So think about the largest healthcare trade associations do spend hundreds of millions of dollars. But again, imagine there are foundations generally who all hold the same view of healthcare, spending $300 million plus a year on just policy formation and development, which really shows this new very powerful role being played by the not-for-profit sector. We started looking into this a couple of years ago when we realized that so much of the policy activity in healthcare was not being driven by our clients or their peers or even their competitors. When we really looked into it, we realized that it was being funded by foundations. And when we talked to people about this, it didn't really seem like there was any broad recognition. By default, people tend to think of foundations as philanthropic foundations and therefore neutral actors in contrast to corporate funders who have a vested interest in a particular outcome. What we have seen actually is that often foundation funding is tied to some kind of agenda. Foundations have their own views, they have their own ideological objectives, and sometimes they're even tied into commercial objectives. But the norms of Washington, D.C. are such that foundation funding does not need to be disclosed, or when it is disclosed, it doesn't carry the same kind of baggage that industry funding carries. So as a result, there's a lot of foundation funding in Washington, D.C., not just in healthcare, but in other sectors. For example, the energy sector is a great example of this. Other sectors include the automotive sector and other parts of the transportation sector. People often imagine that large businesses are the dominant spending powers and therefore the dominant forces of influence in the government relations policy formation space. But I would say in recent years, they really have been challenged and in some sectors, as you note, Jeremy, exceeded, surpassed by foundations. And I think most companies underappreciate the true role being played today by foundations in many, many sectors of the economy when it comes to the policy debate and what results from that. Just as one statistic, in healthcare, which is probably the sector of the economy that has the greatest amount of spending in Washington, D.C., there's only one trade association whose budget exceeds that of the major foundations. And that's the association representing pharmaceutical manufacturers. Everybody else is being outspent by foundations. I think the incumbent view of foundations is that of a PBS viewer, which is to say, at the end of the show, you see these really nice, impressive-sounding bodies like the Charles H. Revson Foundation. And you say, okay, this is, uh, you know, this is a sort of impressive, uh, sterling name, probably sitting in New York, a nice office, transcendent, a little bit of grubby day-to-day activity. And I think, Jeremy, your research in particular— has shown that there's a lot of hand-to-hand combat, shall I say, by foundations. They're not astride the political system. They are in the weeds of the political system. I can't remember the movie, but years ago, my kids watched some animated film, and one of the characters in this animated film was a very cute bunny who happened to be a killer. You know, I mean, like, so you, you thought, look at the cute little bunny, and, you know, the bunny will tear your throat out. And I think that's what you're referencing, Johnny, is that, that foundations have this, on the surface, this, this cuddly quality, but they should not be underestimated. I'm not accusing them of homicide, by the way. I want to be clear, but I do think people do make that mistake. Moving to topic six, what we call the power of deep biography. 
I'm going to set this up and then toss it to you, Johnny, our expert on biography, which is that I think Americans have a wonderful quality, which is this idea that everyone can remake themselves, can invent themselves, can chart their own course. You go read The Great Gatsby and the whole story of people define their existence and their path in life. And we don't think a lot about where people come from, the journey they travel, that of their parents and their grandparents and all the forces that helped shape them even before they were born, but certainly in the formative years of their life. And so in the American context, that tends to get all skipped over, and we just take people as we find them and assume that they appeared out of thin air five minutes ago. But in truth, biography reveals an enormous amount in the political realm, even if it's overlooked. Over and over again, we find that super influencers in particular areas of policy have been clearly deeply shaped by biographical factors. And I'll give a number of examples that I think to us have been signal over the years. One individual who has been very influential on a number of topics, I guess most recently during the pandemic, is Bill Gates, the founder of Microsoft. And if you look at his work personally and the work of the Gates Foundation over the years on public health questions, that work is a remarkable contrast and thus cannot be coincidental to his ancestry. His grandparents on both sides were devout Christian scientists, and he even has recounted that I believe his mother's father died of cancer without any treatment from medical practitioners in observance of Christian science tenets. And there's something to that biography that clearly has shaped his total commitment to global public health. Another example would be Senator Sheldon Whitehouse of Rhode Island, who's been very active on questions of climate change and energy policy and been a critic of the oil and gas industry and other emitters of carbon. If you look at his biography, both he and his wife are descended from Gilded Age tycoons who owned municipal gas companies throughout the United States. I think his ancestry in the Twin Cities and his wife in Philadelphia. And you can't help but look at that and think that maybe has been a spur, whether consciously or not, to how they have engaged the debate on public policy. They've brought clearly their own experiences and credentials and study to bear, but it seems that there was a spur from this family history. Those are a couple examples of deep biography in the multi-generational sense. And another example we could look at is former FDA commissioner Scott Gottlieb, who was very influential already outside the Trump administration during COVID response. And he was a member of the board of Pfizer and very focused on the development of medical treatments to deal with COVID. Well, if you look at his biography before he was a government official, he was the editor of George Gilder's biotech report, which was a publication that really embraced what it perceived as the supply side miracle of biotechnology development. And so he was almost out of central casting for playing a role, really embracing 
new technologies that would get us out of COVID. And he did that to a large extent also while in the Trump administration. So in all of these cases, we see either from the early part of a super influencer's career or from their grandparents or even further back, a kind of nudge in a particular policy direction. And it's remarkable to us how common it is for a lobbyist for a major company or a CEO of a major company to go into a meeting with a key decision maker totally uninformed about that decision maker's background, their perspective, their life story in any detailed way. And we think there's a lot of missed opportunities and a lot of mistakes made as a result of that. Moving to topic seven, Jeremy, your specialty, what we call China free fall. I'll just say that it is clear to us in the conversations that we're having with clients and others in the past weeks and months that the U.S.-China relationship is in a state of rapid decline, or it's perceived that way, and I think companies are really revisiting a lot of their core assumptions. Jonathan, I think the free fall is the previous policy consensus or set of norms around the U.S.-China relationship, which was that Maybe there was some military competition or some national security concerns, but by and large, the commercial relationship between the United States and China could continue. And I think people realize that there is a – we're at a point where the military or national security competition with China that many political leaders are focused on, that competition – requires certain economic shifts. It requires changing the commercial relationship with China. And that this risks massive consequences for almost all major companies in the United States. At this point, there isn't really a cohesive understanding of what that shift is going to look like. There's no consensus on how to do this. There are various competing ideas I don't think anybody really knows where we're going to end up in a few years. It could be that competition intensifies and U.S.-China trade is significantly curtailed. U.S. companies need to exit the Chinese market. Chinese companies are somehow kicked out of the U.S. market. It's possible that that will occur. It's possible that that will actually prove to be economically impossible and that the desires or ambitions of those concerned about U.S.-China competition, that instead, U.S.-China competition will be kind of constrained or diminished because of these economic realities. It's possible that certain sectors are going to get targeted and that we'll have targeted decoupling in certain sectors and not others. It's possible that the selection of those sectors will be very political and not necessarily merit-based and that certain companies are going to get essentially whacked while they see that their peers are allowed to maintain their business models. I think all of that is fairly likely, in fact. So companies see this potentially chaotic and unpredictable future around U.S.-China policy. They're concerned. They're not sure what to do. They're hearing different things from different experts and different political leaders. And they're getting mixed messages when they hear what's happening in D.C. and what they hear from corporate headquarters or Wall Street. So it's a very challenging situation for many companies, and that's what we're seeing. Thank you. That is our guide for the perplexed in seven trends. 
We hope we've offered you a different perspective and you've learned something. I want to thank you, Johnny, and you, Jeremy, for another great discussion. Great to be here. Thank you, Jonathan. And thank you to our audience, and we hope you'll join us for a future episode of The Political Risk Brief. 